for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Bob Bryant, the president and CEO of the 500 Festival. While much of the world turns its attention to the Indianapolis 500 on race day, the city and even the entire state of Indiana is consumed by race-related events for much of the month of May. Many of those are part of the 500 Festival. We need to make sure it's not just about supporting it, which is a part of it, but also are we maximizing the value of being the home to it? As a nonprofit, the festival strives to make a difference in the local area. And the other part of our mission is enrich lives and foster positive community impact. So um, that allows us to really have a pretty broad scope. That also means there is a tremendous amount of support for all of the festival's various events. You know, this community does come together as well as any I've seen, works together incredibly well, has a spirit of volunteerism that is not waned at all, that is still very significant. Um, so it's really not that difficult to engage, whether it's individuals, whether it's societal, cultural, or whether it's corporate. Bob also shares a great deal in this episode about his own experiences, which range from working with the circus to Cartoon Network. If you can choose an eclectic path, and that suits you, which it did me, there is a benefit because you're bringing a multitude of experiences to bear on whatever that project is at that time. He also shares an important tip that has helped him through all his experiences and that he stresses to anyone who's looking to get more involved in the industry. You know, events are tiring and, and you know, the sports world is a grinding number of games and schedules. And I mean, it's and a positive attitude. It's just huge because that's who everybody wants to work with, right? Before we get started, if you like what you're hearing on Credentials Only and you think other people might benefit from hearing it, please leave a rating and review wherever you're listening because that'll help get us exposed to some new audiences. Also, check out credentialsonly.com for show notes on this episode. While you're there, you can sign up for our mailing list. And of course, we are on social media, so give us a follow. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Bob Bryant. Bob, thank you so much for joining me. To many, the Indianapolis 500 is a big event on the calendar, but it's a three hour or so race at the end of May. But if you live in Indianapolis, it's so much more than that. How would you describe the Indianapolis 500 to an outsider as someone in Indy? Well, I came here from Atlanta um, and didn't grow up in this area. Um, and so I, I can describe it as I was an outsider, you know, eight years ago when I came up specifically for this position. And, and I think it was, I think it's been beneficial in some ways to see it as an outsider because there's very, there are very few experiences anywhere um, having been in a lot of different sports industries and event and entertainment and theme parks and, and things like that. I don't, I, it's very rare. Um, there's very few experiences like this and it's um, you, you know, you kind of get that spring fever maybe in some areas where it's, you know, they have seasonality. And so getting into spring is in, in and of itself exciting to get warm again. But um, the amount of activities, the amount of engagement, I mean, you know, we're doing community related events and activities, a, a good percentage of them um, free and open for people to attend that over half a million people are attending predominantly all in the month of May. That's as many people as will be at the track for race-related events in the month of May. So if, if you're not from here, you're not aware of, of all of that going on. But I, and I will say that the other part of it is 
having upwards of a um, really a strong database and, and community of 7,000 volunteers. So we use about 4,000 individual volunteers for multiple positions throughout the month of May for the things we do. So if you think about it, even that multi-generationally, where you've had your part of May, in some cases it's attending the race and you've had tickets in the same location forever. And others it's, you've, you know, we have, we're down to eight people who have run all 44 uh, One America 500 Festival mini marathons. You know, we do one of the largest half marathons in the country is here in Indiana. So for 44 years, for probably half of those years, it's been the largest half marathon in the country, top five largest in the world. And it's an 85% plus Indiana Hoosier participant base. Oh, so, wow. so who, you know, so people in the running community, um, Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, Chicago, even Frankfurt, Tokyo, things like that, they know the many, you know, they know that Frank Shorter won the first one and Bill Rogers won the second one, you know, and we get, you know, a host of Olympic athletes still coming to run it. Um, but, but I didn't know it. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't know what the mini was prior to coming here. So it's a very unique experience. I will say the only one that's similar, um, the Kentucky Derby started a year before us. So I think, I think we began in like 1957, they were 1956. And so it was actually some leaders from in Indianapolis went down to Louisville for the Derby saw what they were doing and said, hey, we should do that too. And basically what they were doing is saying, this event is becoming so significant to the fabric of everything about Kentucky and certainly Louisville. Um, and the same way for the Indy 500 in, in Indiana and Indianapolis, that we need, to, we need to make sure, it's not just about supporting it, which is a part of it, but also are we maximizing the value of being the home to it? So it's kind of the forerunner to what we automatically think of with Super Bowl host committees and Olympic host committees that, hey, there's going to be this long-term residual benefit. There's going to be millions spent on facilities that we'll use for, you know, decades after the event leaves town and things like that. These were community-led initiatives to say, what's the residual benefit and what else could we be doing? Because it's a big asset. So it's, it's a Super Bowl every year, you know? Um, and so what are we doing to take advantage of being the home of that? And the race itself it's more than just the race. And a lot of these circuits go into a market for one week. These drivers and teams come to Indianapolis and there are events at the track for a few weeks leading up to it, which kind of gives it that month long feel. And, and my sense is that everyone in Indianapolis is tuned in to the practices and to the qualifying and carb day and all these other events. And that gives you that window for the foundation to come in and have this festival that mirrors that same time frame, right? Yeah, I think that's the that was the basis of it. And I think the growth now is that in some ways we talk about how we, we make the Indy 500 relevant, even for those audience who never go to the race and who don't pay attention to all that, because now they see a benefit of being the home of it. So if we have a, a, a free kids festival um, that has 40, 50, sometimes 60,000 people at it, and it's free to attend, and all the programming is around multicultural entertainment and, and health and fitness, um, they're understanding that, and it's all 500 themed, and it's obviously a part of that month of May and, and all that buildup, but they can see a value and gain something from it, even if they, they don't transcend into being race fans all the time. So again, it's really just that, um, if you think about not so uh, modern of a term these days to talk about brand, but 
you know, if you think about that as a community brand, and then you're just constantly saying, how do we, how do we maximize the value of that? Um, so it's pretty unique that I, that, that we, we obviously have a significant percentage that are engaged in all of it, practice qualifying the race, our link to it, having drivers involved in our events. Some of our events we actually produce are half the track. But then there's this whole other audience that's, that's more about, hey, I want to be involved in running. I want to be involved in fitness or in health or in, you know, our, I love parades or I want to do something with family and kids. Or, um, but I think, you know, when we do it well, likely we're appealing to everybody who is a fan. And at some point, you know, even if we're the, 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 the conduit or the reason why, they wind up going to the race for the first time and having that experience, you know, we're supporting it that way too. But it's, it's been interesting that we have this uh, standalone, um, completely independent opportunity to make those decisions on our own. I mean, we work, we work with uh, the race and the speedway, but we really have that autonomy to say, you know, put community interest first and, and how do we use that value? Um, so it's a, it's a nonprofit organization you know, with managed by a board of directors of community leaders. And, and that part is, is very unique. I want to touch on the events. You've, you've talked about a number of them already, but I want to get into a little bit more expansive on each of them. Um, the parade, that is probably one of the bigger community events, it, it just because it's a parade and that's, that's very easy for people to participate in that. And that is one of those touch points where the drivers do get involved how long is the parade? How many people turn out? And when is that held in relation to the race? The parade is the day before the race. We kind of have a lead up. The first weekend, first Saturday, is the One America 500 Festival Mini Marathon and the Delta Dental 500 Festival 5K. So that's a race of, say, 25 to 30,000 people. Um, the next weekend is the uh, Salesforce J.P. Morgan Chase 500 Festival Kids Day and Rookie Run. I'm going to get all my sponsor names in because I love it. I'm going to ask you about that. So keep it going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that's then the next Saturday. um, And that's those youth activities that I talked about. Um, Then we have a weekend that's qualifying weekend and we host what we call the um, 500 festival breakfast, the brickyard presented by Midwestern engineers. And that's where we host mayors, usually 70 to 80 mayors. So all the mayors from every town, village and city in Indiana, we host them at the track and do this, uh, some unique programming, usually have a racing legend speak and we, and we do some things and then, and then the mayors are hosted by the track and get to watch qualifying. So very unique, again, community experience that, that to, to bring all the mayors from all your towns together is kind of an, a, a neat opportunity. And then so for Memorial Weekend, we do a, it's the uh, newly, newly named with a new sponsors, the American Legion 500 Festival Memorial Service. And that's broadcast locally here. Um, it's actually live streamed and then broadcast on Memorial Day. Um, and we bring in a ranking four-star command general, usually someone on the, on the cabinet um, who comes in for that. The mayor and the governor are part of that. Um, just uh, we, we do a private ceremony for Gold Star families. Um, so a very uh, significant, um, really on the national landscape, memorial service that we're producing on Friday Saturday is the AES 500 Festival Parade, formerly IPL, IPL, the local utility uh, that is taking on its corporate parent name of AES. Um, That parade is 250 to 300,000 people downtown. Wow. So we sell bleacher seating and tickets for about 27,000 people and the rest are all seeing that for free. 
Um, it is nationally televised on NBC Sports, locally televised on the NBC station. Um, obviously, big following and a big a big deal. It's you know it's it's up there with uh, Macy's Day and Tournament of Roses and some of those in terms of its history and its scale and scope. Um, and then that night we do a red carpet again, televised red carpet for all the VIPs and celebrities in town. Um, the party the night before the race is called Off the Grid. Um, presented by KeyBank. Uh, and, and I, I want to ask about one specific question about that because it used to be called the Snake Pit Ball, which just yes. seems like a crazy name. Please explain that. Yes. So for a very long period of time, uh, for decades, there was an area in the infield of the race that would become what we would know as kind of a mosh pit. It, if, if it had been raining, it'd be muddy. If it would... If it hadn't, it'd be dusty and dirty. And it was where everybody of, let's say, college age or so would gather and sometimes not know when the race began or started or ended. But they would have a heck of a crazy time. And that, and that area became known as the snake pit. So as the race developed and they added seats, they built seats and grass mounds and the snake pit went away. So what had been in, in, let's say, the 50s and 60s, the festival produced the governor's ball that was repurposed and kind of turned into the, you know, what we know as like the party the night before a big event where all the celebs and everybody goes to. And so we, we repurposed that name and went from the snake pit and the governor's ball to the snake pit ball. And there was a lot of fun tongue in cheek, you know, coming. We'd have actors dressed like what would have been young people in the snake pit in the day. Um, but then the track had a really unique concept of bringing back snake pit became an EDM concert in the middle of the track on race day. So they were doing 30 to 40,000 people with a massive outdoor stage and a lineup of, of, um, um, EDM and other, other musicians. And, and, um, and so we felt like now there was confusion because now there was a snake pit ticket for the event at the track, which is a very different audience from the snake pit ball (laughs) VIP party in the red carpet. So we kind of, we went, we, we came up with a new name and left Snake Pit to them. Gotcha. Okay. So, and then is that the end of the, the festival for you is that night before with the ball? Um, the morning of the race, we have some fun where, so um, in, a, in a contract with uh, the Speedway and Chevrolet, we get 33 sort of replica pace cars. So they're not sometimes they're Camaros when the pace car is a Corvette, but it's got the same decals and color and design and all that. They, they actually call them from back in the, from back, way back in the day, they're still actually called the festival cars. So the festival pace cars go to the 33 board directors on race morning. We also have a program called the 500 festival uh, princess program, um, it, which is now presented by the national bank of Indianapolis. Um, the princess program has become all about leadership development, scholarship. Um, you know, there's nothing pageanty about it. Um, but it's, it's, um, a highly regarded program and opportunity for 33 young college age women in Indiana. So we maintain that tradition. So we'll take, um, we'll have a police escort from downtown on that race morning, take the 33 pace car or festival pace cars out with the board of directors driving, a princess in the car that they've actually been mentoring for the last three months. Um, and then we get to do what they call one of the parade laps around the track. So we enter the track. There's no better. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to go again if I'm not with the festival, because you 
enter in a police escort and drive right out to the racetrack. You oh. get out of the cars, you hang out and you take pictures because we're usually there like an hour before they need us to be. And we hang out and then we all jump in our cars and do a lap around the track on race morning. Then we park them all together in a nice spot that IMS and Chevy has worked out for us to park all these pace cars together. And we go sit in the suite and, and that's when you know your month of May is finally done because you're going to watch the race. I was going to say, does this all mean that you get to kick your feet back and watch the greatest spectacle? That sounds it's, like a great end of the month of May for you. There's, I, you know, I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody. If you, if you could be in this position, um, it is just a, just an, an amazing experience to be a part of all that community stuff, but then culminate when you, with you just getting to be a fan um, of the race itself. You mentioned the start in 1957. That's over 60 years of history. And I get the sense tradition is very important in this. Um, the number 33 has come up a few times here in terms of the number of people on your board, the number of princesses in that program. Uh, I know Larry Bird in basketball is very important in the state of Indiana, but I'm guessing it's not 33 because that was his number. Why 33? Uh, it's just the history of the race. 11 rows, three cars per row. And I honestly, I don't know exactly where that came from. Like when, you know, what year it, it got to where it was always going to be 11 rows of three. I mean, there, you know, people that, you know, on, on qualifying or what they used to call bump day, you know, you, they were never, they've never strayed from it. So, you know, you're going to miss the race. And we had, we had a top name driver when they kind of went back to that bump day format um, where you weren't just guaranteed a spot based on some points and things like that. And, and I think they brought some of that drama back where you really do have to qualify and make this race. And if you get unlucky or the weather's wrong at the time you're qualifying or, you know, so we had James Hinchcliffe um, not make a race a few years back and pretty dramatic for a, a driver and a sponsor. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they stick to the 11 rows of three. 33 cars in the race, 33 years throughout the festival, 500 is branded and everything. There is so much synergy between what you're doing. And part of that is probably rooted in tradition. How do you then balance that with innovation to attract new audiences? And you do have that generational impact, but you do still want to attract new fans. Um, I think we're uniquely positioned to be able to think about that even more because Again, we're leveraging the value of that for, for what's supportive of the community. So we get to have a lens on it that says, are we relevant to all demographics? Are we relevant to all audiences, to all of Indiana? Um, and if we're not, why and how can we be? Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, the product on the track, they can look at innovation and they can look at speed and they can look at things like that, but it's still a car race. Whereas what we do you know, the history of the festival is um, you go back and it used to produce um, kind of pre-PGA days. It, it produced um, a golf tournament that was won by Gary Player and the Jack Nicklaus oh. and Arnold Palmer came to play. The, the golf course that's intertwined uh, with three holes inside the racetrack called the, the Brickyard Crossing Golf Course. So the 500 festival actually hosted and came up with the, the purse for an invitational professional golf tournament for many years. Um, I read in its history, you know, they once produced the world's largest gin rummy tournament. <laughs> and uh, so they've had a variety of things that were that were maybe relevant at that particular time. 
And so we actually have an opportunity to look at what's relevant. And again, how do we, how do we leverage the, the 500 connective piece? But what are things that, that we can do? And the other part of our mission is enrich lives and foster positive community impact. So um, that allows us to really have a pretty broad scope of like consistently looking at things. We, we really, I think in the last five years, just uncovered that, you know, we're in the running business too. I mean, when you've got um, a half marathon, it's the size of, we've had over a million people from Indiana have run the mini at least once. Um, and so we've leveraged that for youth health and fitness initiatives and now do a ton of things across um, running and walking and challenging yourselves to physical achievement. We've added a lot of virtual events in this past year. Um, so we've recognized that that's a whole new value now to leverage. We have the 500. Well, now we have the mini. Um, and so the mini marathon has been a catalyst for things that we can do uh, to be relevant in the community. With that type of a mission and with your status as a nonprofit, this community impact has to be at the fore of everything you're doing. How do you guys stay dialed in on that mission? Even when you're going out there and pursuing that litany of title sponsors you just referenced in all these events. Well, it helps that the community is so dialed in to who we are and what we do and how much going back to, you know, the start of our conversation about the month of May, um, there's, there is a, you know, we talk about who's your hospitality. We talk about being host to final fours and now the entire NCAA tournament and super bowls. And, you know, this community does come together as well as any I've seen works together incredibly well, has a spirit of volunteerism that is not waned at all. That is still very significant. Um, so it's really not that difficult to engage, whether it's individuals, whether it's, you know, societal, cultural, or whether it's corporate, um, to engage with them and, and keep working on, you know, what, where, what is relevant? What are the needs in the community? And are there ways? And it's, it, it's sometimes it just doesn't even, from the outside, I could see it seeming like a stretch, but from the inside, whatever that community need is. I mean, you know, we, we had, I mean, even when it was about vaccination, you know, the track hosted um, three days of drive-in vaccinations where you actually drove into the garages, the drivers used and the national guard was there. Um, um, providing vaccines, you know, is it sometimes even about public health or promotion or, or, you know, ways that we can support what the state health department or state education department or, um, so there's a lot of people that kind of understand that we're there to be turned on for something that the community needs. Um, but I think the other is to just remind yourself that we are mission-based. Um, I do think that there are, there are times in our history when it's easy to just get sucked into these are the events we do. And so let's just do these events really well and not why do you do the events? Um, because we're not for profit. So we're not doing them to make money. So, you know, a, a for profit entity has a real understanding of, you know, when it stops making money, you stop doing it. Where, if, you know, nonprofit, you just keep thinking, well, we always do this event. We have to keep doing the event and the event is what we're known for. Um, so we, we had a pretty good strategic, plan and process, I'd say about six years ago, where we said, yeah, but let, why are we doing it? And, and if we put that measurement across them, are there some we need to stop doing? Are there some that, some that we could scale up significantly? Or are there some that we haven't done at all that we should be thinking about? Um, so I think on a regular basis, we just do that gut check and, and then pay attention to what's happening and, and how we can be supportive. The sponsorship piece, are you tied in at all to the race sponsorship? Are you completely independent? 
And how important is that local sponsor to what you're doing? Um, it's incredibly, incredibly important to how we work. Um, sometimes it's, it's not always directly tied to board director positions, which are highly sought after. I mean, you only get to be on a board for, you know, one term is typically six years and that's it. Um, and it's a highly coveted opportunity to, to obviously engage and be behind the scenes for the month of May and, um, and, you know, get a pace car and, and drive into the track the way I said on race day. But, um, it's, um, it's, it's an important piece of what we do. It is local. We're very fortunate that Indianapolis does have some national headquarters um, for a variety of companies that are involved with us locally as well. Um, and it was developed as a traditional almost sports team model. So what we're uncovering now is an opportunity through our Fest 500 Festival Foundation to actually go a more traditional nonprofit route and start getting engaged in grants and donors and fundraising campaigns and you know a whole nother model of fundraising as we've been more focused on mission and people understand that more the sponsorship side has had deliverables because if you if you're doing events for half a million people you have the same deliverables you know other festivals and, and sports teams would have so it's been you know there's there's branding there's engagement you know i was saying every every event with its title or presenting sponsor i mean there's there's a real deliverable um, that typically has been more through their sponsorship and marketing departments and not their community relations or foundations. Operationally, these all just seem very different. Hosting a breakfast and, and mayors at the track and then hosting a, a ball and a mini marathon and uh, the parade. Operationally, there's just a lot of differences between those. How does your team manage balancing all these different events, especially when they're on top of each other within one month? Um, I, you know, I never really understood how my background was going to come together in one place. Um, you know, I mentioned, I, you know, I started out as a promoter for Ringling Brothers Circus and Disney on Ice with Feld Entertainment. Um, you know, I, I then went to Universal Studios for the, the, uh, construction, build out and launch of the Universal Studios theme park in Orlando. And, and it was with a minor league hockey team uh, and a new franchise and, um, you know, then Cartoon Network and, and introducing Cartoon Network to both tennis and to NASCAR with Cartoon Network wacky racing and cars with like Scooby-Doo on the track. And um, so it's been a pretty eclectic background. You know, I think it keeps it fun, quite honestly. You could think that May is a little bit like Groundhog Day because you're like, oh, we, we, you know, from an event perspective, oh, we got to go do all these same things. But all those things are so different that I think it keeps us all excited and fresh. Um, the other thing I think that is really critical is we have 12 in a, in a normal, in a non-COVID <laughs> year, we have 12 full-time paid interns. Hmm. So they come in and they're, they're in our office and they're, they're with us from January all the way through June. Half of our staff our former intern. And now wow. we have interns and princesses from the princess program um, that are in positions all over the city and state um, in entertainment and sports, et cetera. So it's been, an, it's been a, a launching pad for them and their careers, but also for us um, to keep having fresh ideas and fresh engagement. You know, we encourage anybody at some point, um, there's some that would could do this for 20, 30 years. And there's others that, you know, it's that five, six year mark where you're like, ah, I can't do another May or I just, you know, I just kind of, or I want to do something different or, you know, we always encourage them that, 
you know, everybody's going to have a different timeline to how they feel about doing these things. But I do, I think the diversity helps us to stay fresh. We, we do staff assignments. So we, we have people managing somebody assigned for each event and program, but we're small enough that you're going to have two or three if you're an operations manager for an event. But then every single staff has a staff assignment that that person is managing. So you're going to be working for somebody that later is going to be working for you <laughs> throughout the month of May. And that includes me. You know, I get, I get whatever my staff assignments are. And I think that's the other thing that helps is that uh, there are times when we can change over those, man- those, those operational and logistical managers and say, you know, you've done the parade for six years. Let's train someone else. But now let's get you on, you know, the, the mini or kids day or other events. Is there an added benefit too that there are so many partners that you guys work with who are probably across many of them, whether it's a vendor for tents and staging or food and beverage suppliers, or even the governments that you have to interface with to close streets and do all the things you need to do? Does that help that you guys are a consistent business partner? Oh, without a doubt. But it's also, they're, they're all fans of what we're doing too. And they all have family engaged in the things we're doing. So you know, when you're, when you're putting on the mini marathon or the parade, both of those events are considered major civic events. And so you're talking about everything from Homeland Security to the police department, fire, health, um, public works. And like we have committee meetings that'll start sometimes six months out. That'll be, that'll be 60 to 70 people that have all been doing it. Some of them for 20, 30 plus years. So they're all, and they, they all, they can't wait for the committee meetings. They can't wait to come back together and talk about, you know, and they're waiting and they always want to hear from us what's new or what's different or, you know, what are we, uh, what are we, what's kind of a part of what we're going to be promoting. Um, but it's pretty, again, very unique um, that this committee comes together in that way. And we really have not had any situations of turmoil or difficulty or infighting or, you know, it's like everybody knows their role and their place. And they just love that our community has these things. Um, so it's, you know, really supportive in that way. You mentioned your eclectic background, and I'm glad you did, because I definitely want to talk about that. And uh, those first few years, really marketing focused with the circus, with Universal, with Disney on Ice, that marketing background, how much do you see that coming out now in what you are doing currently? Well, you always just, rely on and default to whatever your personal experiences are, right? So it's a significant part of the fabric of who I am and what I've been through. So it's applied daily. Um, And I think that's the fun of, if you can choose an eclectic path (laughs) and that suits you, which it did me, there is a benefit because you're bringing a multitude of experiences to bear on whatever your, whatever that project is at that time. And so it's, it's always interesting to me to realize what, relates from whether it was running a tennis tournament or an arena football team or building a theme park or creating a licensing program around NASCAR and Cartoon Network characters. There, there's just applications of that throughout a lot of different things that you do. Um, and I think, you know, not everybody wants to hear your stories. <laughs> so you have to, you know, I don't want to be the old guy who's like, oh, I remember when, you know, <laughs> such and such or this happened or that. So, but I you think that they're just a part of your makeup and it's more of how do you, how do you freshen that? And when, when does it, when can you apply it? And what are those ideas? Um, 
And it's all—it's not usually like a, a plug and play. You're not exactly replicating something you did somewhere else, but it's just—it uh, helps you, I think, from a creative standpoint um, to know that there's different ways to do things. Do you think there's value in someone? Let's say they want to work in sports, but they're struggling to find an opportunity in sports. To going on to that event side. I mean, anytime you're hosting people in an event, whether it's a, a sport, a competition, or a Disney on Ice, or at a theme park there's a lot of the same muscles being used for that. Do you think that is a viable route that people should consider as they're trying to break into the industry to get any sort of event experience because it can cross over so easily into sports specific events? Without a doubt. I mean, I, I, I know that there were times in, in some things that I was involved in where I remember specifically in hockey, you know, I, and at one point um, I was actually, it's a long story, but, uh, one of the owners uh, was going to probably assume the role of being kind of like the team GM or whatever, but he, but he had another position at the time. So I had, for an interim period of time, I wasn't just like the director of sales and marketing, but I was kind of the GM. And I, would, I went to the, you know, the first IHL governor's meeting as, as the representative. And I, and I was like, you know, I don't even know how to ice skate. So this is really awkward because they're all hockey, you know, everybody has played hockey, you know, and, but right away, and I was young at the time and I'm still in my twenties and I'm at this, you know, and the IHL had visions at that time of being in bigger and bigger markets. They were going into Atlanta and maybe Houston and uh, they were in San Diego, things like that. It wasn't going to be just Peoria and Kalamazoo. It was gonna, they were going to get into bigger markets. And anyway, I just remember they're wonderful people, but they were all hockey. They were a lot of, you know, hockey guys. Right. And so they were having conversations about something to do with marketing. And I was really, I, I'm actually, you know, um, early on in particular, I was shy in group settings that I, you know, I didn't want to like be like Mr. Know-it-all or whatever. And somehow somebody happened to ask me something and, and I, and I talked about what we were doing. And basically it was the, the ringling and Disney model of how we were promoting our team. And we already had sold more season tickets than anybody in the IHL. We hadn't even, we didn't have players yet. Right. So we weren't even, we weren't even into our season. And so they, and, and it dawned, that was maybe one of the early times it dawned on me that the whole room didn't look at me like, oh, you arrogant, you know, whatever. It was, they all were like, <laughs> I'll never forget a guy from, um, he had, it was the Phoenix Coyotes and the owner is the governor, right? And most of these guys were team owners and I was, I just happened to somehow be in the room, right? And he said, uh, after after everything I talked about, about what we were doing versus everybody else talking about their typical promotions, he said, well, uh, Bob, um, the only thing, my only question for you is, uh, when do you think you can move to Phoenix? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you know, everything you just said applies and we're not, we're not doing that. Like we, because it's basically a Feld promoter. It's a ringling promoter. It's an event promoter. And now I will say that sports is, so much more mature now. I mean, the specialization mm-hmm. within sports is here. I don't even know how a, a jack of all trades would fit within a major league sports team right now because they're so specialized in digital and social and season tickets and hospitality and, and sales packaging. And, and just, I mean, it's, you know, dynamic ticket pricing. I mean, there's, there's, they're so professional and, and very significant in size you know, in terms of the number of people working and, and, and the, the revenues generated by, by TV and other areas have made that to be a completely professional business. So I would never tell anybody that I'm going to, you know, show up and show the Chicago Bears how to market, you know, anything. But 
But at that time, at that given moment, you could just see the value that I wasn't someone who played hockey and loved hockey. So I used to tell a lot of young people, they come to me and they'd be, I love hockey. And I'd be like, okay, great, buy season tickets. It doesn't mean you need to go work in hockey. Because quite honestly, if you, for certain sports, if you love them, when you work with a team, you never get to see the team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, I mean, you know, like if you love tennis, there's not a lot of matches. You just sit down and watch. You know, you yeah. are engaged sometimes in the in the deep, dark, windowless trenches of a building or a facility um, or in a box office or wherever. And, and you don't even know. And you're trying to, like, find the score and you're trying and you it's like you're not going to engage in being a fan in a traditional way. Um, and so sometimes, yeah, environmentally, it's um, it might even benefit you to not go right to the thing you think you love the most get that experience and it is it's experience in engaging in customers um understanding you know what's you've been you've been a customer likely you've been to an event so it's consistently putting yourself in the shoes of that fan and that participant and that ticket buyer and that suite holder and that sponsor and and just understanding what's their experience and events help you with that especially the smaller they are because you're hands-on with even the smallest request because you don't have the same resources sometimes, or because it's a temporary venue because you can't rely upon that. You know, the great building is just built and people show up and the building will take care of a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the activation. It's like, it's up to people when it's all temporary and small. You mentioned that sales success, you called it the ringling Disney model. Can you summarize what you mean by that and what you were doing different? There is something that we, it's all the way back to that being my first. You have to be a promoter. What that means to me is, first, it actually just means energy and effort. It actually means that you have to care about every little incremental piece that is going to, in, in, in the case of a for-profit, is going to generate profit, right? So how are you going to sell incrementally more tickets? How are you going to upcharge people who are already coming to, you know, the VIP experience? How are you like everywhere you see an opportunity, it's basically very, being very opportunistic, but then being willing to follow up on that. Um, I, I have a, I have a really, as I get older, a shorter and shorter fuse with the idea people who have no concept of execution I love ideas. I love being creative. I love other people who are creative, but it has to be in context of the resources and time available to actually execute the ideas, especially in sports, in events, in, in that environment. Typically you have a limited window of time. You know, you have a limited window of resources of people, of money, whatever. And I think a a promoter mentality is being opportunistic. And there are times when it's uncovering a partner, and realizing what they can do for you that would that gives you this big incremental gain. And so sometimes it's actually just like, oh, well, wait a minute. They could do all of that for me and really could significantly increase my, my reach or my messaging or my sales or whatever. But now I have to, I have to go and get and make them a partner. We had a good lunch or a good round of golf, but I, I got that, you know, no, you actually have to do what we talked about. You know, like it was a fun idea. But if in your mind, you opportunistically think, well, that's a thousand tickets if I could get this done. Now it's a relentless pursuit of getting it done. And I think that's what the, the Ringling and, and Disney mentality was really more that we were young people, usually within two to three years of college, in a market by ourselves with no 
no corporate support. And it was all, it was up to you to drum up the PR, the notice, the awareness, the advertising partnerships, the media partnerships. How were you going to sell? It was just up to you. And that meant that you in those days, I mean, I hate to say pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-laptop, you know, you're, you're clanking away agreements on a, on a typewriter in like the referee's training room in an arena <laughs> where your show is going to come, you know, come into town and, and driving them to like the station manager who's going to run eight spots a day for four weeks that with a spot that you actually have in your little promoter case to hand to them to run the commercials. You know, it's like, it was so hands-on that you realized that you were the, the essential cog in stuff actually happening that would generate those ticket sales. And what I found is that in, in, and I don't want to say it's just the corporate mentality, but I, but I think sometimes people are just unaware of how much effort that takes. It's not just passion, it's effort and it's follow-up and it's an intensity of detail and, and getting people to actually do what they say they're going to do and a lot of follow-up. And, and I enjoy that, that connection of creative with execution because when you see it actually happen, that to me is when you, that, that's sort of the real fulfillment when you feel awesome about what you do, um, it's, it's when you see it come to fruition um, that it actually happened. And then you see a public or a consumer or a participant, you know, whatever ticket holder response to it. And you're like, okay, we created something. Which is exactly what you did with, you mentioned Time Warner and Turner and the Cartoon Network and Wacky Racing and Smash Tennis. What were those initiatives? Because those exactly are those ideas that you were able to create and then see play out through that execution uh that that's going to be a difficult short story <laughs> <laughs> as i said i don't want to be the old guy just telling all these stories but i guess in a nutshell it's it's again it's listening and then finding the opportunity but then deciding to go through all the effort it's going to take to execute it tennis was um the tia the tennis industry association and the atp tour both wanted to market tennis to kids participation was actually declining so they pitched something to Nickelodeon and Nickelodeon came back with an ad campaign. Like, well, here's the media buy. They pitched it to Cartoon Network and we said, well, let's dive a little deeper into what you're trying to do and, and where you're doing it. And we said, well, what if we, what if we were able to license animation and actually create a spot that utilized animation? And then in addition to a spot schedule, we're, we're trying to get more homes, more, more cable markets to pick up Cartoon Network. So what if we jointly did a tour in the country that was revolving around cartoon, cartoon network characters in tennis. So what if we jointly use, in essence, use some of your budget to promote tennis, but it also gets us out into markets where we're jointly promoting. So that's promoter mentality. It's like, well, I actually need an experiential marketing tour to help promote cartoon network, but I don't have the money for it. But hey, tennis does right now. <laughs> and tennis wants to prom promote tennis to kids. So you say, well, I can help you do that. Then now you're going to fund my tour. And while I'm there, I'm going to make sure every cable operator knows that I'm there. And I'm going to have kids that come to Cartoon Network Smash Tennis um, basically sign a postcard that says, I want my Cartoon Network. And we're going to mail that postcard to the cable operator. So there's a joint benefit there. We're, but we're all about looking into how do we promote tennis to kids. But again, that and then pulling that together and you know, ultimately, Cartoon Network's Smash Tennis was on the grounds of the French Open and Wimbledon. I mean, whoever thought Wimbledon would let Scooby-Doo and a tennis racket show up? And so we had five units of Smash Tennis. It was in, there was a start of the South American tour with Butch Buchholz, and we had it down in South America. We had it um, 
I'll never forget running into, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget it's the most famous uh, tennis player from, from India. Um, oh, VJ Armitage. VJ. So VJ, um, I saw him in a Newark airport once. I was with someone from Cartoon Network and I was like, oh my gosh, that's VJ Armitage. And they were like, who? And I'm like, oh, never mind. But this guy is like, this, you know, this was, you know, just a legendary tennis player, and but also it made his way into some film and other stuff. Anyway, I went up to him and I could tell he was, he was like, oh, great. Somebody, you know, hi, you know, like, and, and I said, I'm really, I really didn't want to bother you, but I did just want to say like, um, I'm with the Cartoon Network and I didn't say another word. And he was like, he would just went off about, they had just had Cartoon Network smash tennis at his tournament in India. Oh, wow. And he talked about how, how it just immediately connected kids to tennis and like, and he just started, and I was like, you know, that was just, again, it's being opportunistic, but following up on it. And and the fact that we wound up having that place or having that, um, that tour and that event um, at the same time, Cartoon Network was growing globally too. So it was, it benefited us. Um, but it was, it was by being true to saying, well, how can we really promote tennis? Um, and, and then just, uh, and then just seeing it through, uh, NASCAR was similar, you know, wacky racing was actually somebody, an agent who had an idea for selling die cast cars. And at the time, um, I'll never forget. It was uh, two companies racing champions was one, um, and action performance was the other. So they would way outsell Mattel when it came to, cause they had the model of understanding that teams and drivers and car numbers and all that changes rapidly, but that like even kids, much less adults, they buy these die casts based on the, the, the drivers in NASCAR. And as NASCAR was growing die casts, little die cast cars at Walmart were selling off the charts and Mattel couldn't keep up because they were just trying to do generic cars. So anyway, the guy just had a notion of like, Hey, I could get with, I could convince Mattel who's already a big cartoon character, uh, uh, licensee to get into the die cast business in NASCAR. And so it really started as just this licensing concept of like, can we just get maybe Scooby on a car, but then Mattel could sell Scooby cars. And again, it was just opportunistically realizing that in the early nineties, every advertiser of Turner Broadcasting and every other media company was interested in being in NASCAR. Um, For cable television, which was the bulk of obviously what Turner was all about. um, You know, like, five of the top 10 rated shows were NASCAR races and the others were either WWF or WWE. <laughs> it was like oh, wrestling and NASCAR were the highest rated cable shows. And then one that made the top 10, that's a different story for a different time, which was the Powerpuff Girls, which was another, another, another promoter like opportunity that, that I was able to lead at the network, which is monetizing Powerpuff Girls. But, um, so seeing that, we knew that, hey, let's, there's probably a benefit to just be in NASCAR, and we don't even know what it is yet. Um, and this is before TBS or TNT was even broadcasting NASCAR. It was just like, we, we just, you know, we got the green light that, yeah, go go play around and see how to be involved in that, because we know our own advertisers are interested more and more in being a part of that. So again, it was just taking it from a licensing opportunity to starting to understand how does NASCAR operate? Um, who are teams? Who are drivers? How much money do they need? Can we be actually doing it consistently? And then it led to a, a trackside merchandise deal where we, we within the first year of doing it, we were third in trackside sales. It was Earnhardt, oh. Gordon, and Cartoon Network. We had to have four four trailers at every racetrack selling merchandise. 
And what we uncovered was, um, quite honestly, because of how much um, alcohol and tobacco were involved in sponsorship, everybody from a NASCAR perspective stayed away from measuring um, ratings in fans that weren't really pretty much males 18 to 34 kind of thing. They didn't, they didn't want to get into the fact that actually families and kids were into NASCAR and, and mm-hmm. ratings on cable were actually because it wasn't just males. And so what happened was everybody would buy their favorite driver, but then they'd buy a cartoon network to take back home. So when you're at the track, it's like, well, dad loves Rusty Wallace or Dale Earnhardt, but he's going to take a Scooby-Doo car back to his kids. Cause that's what they, and, and that's when we realized it was just timely because of the shift NASCAR itself started to recognize there's a lot of other brands that aren't in that traditional model. Um, and we can be more open about the fact that we have fans across a lot of demographics. Um, and so there was some, you know, again, timing to that, but it's just being opportunistic and in the right place and, and deciding you're going to do something about it and then convince a lot of people to Get, convincing people to let you and then getting partners to like sign on with you. You know, a race team had to say yes to that. Drivers had to say yes to that. NASCAR itself had to say yes to that. Turner had to let you do it. Um, so there's just all that. It's all that detail of like, there were probably a, a bunch of other really good ideas, but somebody has got to be that promoter who's, who's gonna, who's gonna go through all the pain and effort um, and time to actually get it to come to fruition. That smash tennis effort got you into the sport and it really ties a lot of your experience together when you became that tournament director in Atlanta. And a couple of things that you've talked about, I think really were a big part of what you did there. One is obviously being a promoter and you're putting on the event and you're making it all happen. But secondly, this was that venue creation and you guys were really unique because there is a tennis stadium out in stone mountain outside of atlanta but you guys wanted to be in the heart of the city which meant you basically had to create a venue where did you guys play that tournament and what was that experience like to make that happen pretty pretty you're you're going on another just classic what i call promoter mentality moment um there was there was a real estate development mixed-use development with retail office hotel residential and it was in the heart of Midtown Atlanta, happened to be on the side of a highway with the fifth highest traffic count in, in the country, um, where 75 and 85 come together in Atlanta um, is like it or not. If you live there, you don't like knowing it's the fifth highest traffic count in the world but or in America. But um, and that that development had fallen on bad post 2008 times developer had picked it up and was slowly reviving it but it needed it needed people to care about it again because it had gotten a bit of a bad rap as a half developed and 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 not so great area um so downtown atlanta is still not just from downtown residents but it's dependent on you know the braves were there the falcons are there the hawks are there everything all the venues were still downtown at that point and People from the suburbs need to come down there. Atlanta has one of the largest tennis participation markets in the country, uh, but that is predominantly suburban. Um, and so we knew that was also an audience that this developer would need. So it just it just happened to be very opportunistic. It actually started out, I, I remember I would go to Google Earth and I'd try to look for plots of where, was there anywhere you could put down six tennis courts in Atlanta? <laughs> 
because I, I felt the country club model was done. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it was not going to generate enough money, enough revenue, enough fans. And quite honestly, in Atlanta, the, the, the traffic commute times were already so challenging that you couldn't even serve other suburbs. You were only going to serve the one you were in because even traffic, you know, we're, it's actually, believe it or not, easier to manage coming in and out of downtown than like a suburb like Alpharetta, Roswell, or Marietta or whatever. So bottom line is um, it was kind of a cold call um, and then really interesting timing that um, a, a lead leasing agent for that developer reached out and uh, wondered if I would be interested. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, and I was like, I've been looking at the, the map for the last two years and just keep seeing that you've got some some plots of land that are not developed yet. Um, so anyway, it took a developer who actually um, his uh, business partner is one of the owners of the Reds. Um, and so he was very familiar with the Western and Southern and he knew what the following that tournament had in Cincinnati. And he was like, he kind of got what it would mean to be the host of that for a, for a big tennis market like Atlanta. But he also knew that it would um, automatically change the perspective of that entire market around what this place called Atlantic station at the time, what Atlantic station as a development was, and that it was a place you would want to go and visit. So he knew we'd be bringing in clientele that would be, you know, significant part of his growth of, of retail and residential and office development. And so they agreed. Um, I mean, and they probably, it probably cost them about a million dollars a year to build a temporary you know, full tennis tournament in the middle of parking lots and spaces that were, that we knew at some point uh, would be meant for high rise development, but we, we figured we had at least 10 years before that was coming. Um, and it was a way to, to make that, you know, the challenge I've had with tennis all along has been when you, you know, these levels of tournaments, and I won't go into that in this call, but, you know, a 250 uh, in America, I think is still a daunting task. And, and the reason being, as I said, you know, when you're in Atlanta, I mean, LeBron plays here. He doesn't skip Atlanta when he's playing the Hawks. I mean, maybe if he's being rested, but he still shows up. You know, the tour championship with Tiger Woods is Tiger's coming. Phil's coming to play at, at East Lake. Um, you know, I mean, Brady will play the Falcon. I mean, everybody, like, it's a major market. So when I have a tournament in a city that size and I say, oh, well, Roger's not coming and Rafa's not coming. And, you know, I'm a, you go down the list and you're like, so my feeling was the only way to make that work was to make it an event. Still about tennis though. I'm not always a fan of like trying to create festivals that and, and tennis happens to be playing. It's like, it still has to be, if you can't sell the product at some point, you just stop and do a festival and don't have tennis players. You know, like right. you, you still have to be about the, the core product and the event and the players and the competition. And, and you have to find a way that you're still promoting that. Um, but it was really, this allowed us to have a venue that to me could be as interesting as the U S open itself. It had movie theaters, it had restaurants, it had music piped through the streets. It was like a little, you know, almost like a Disneyland of, of retail office residential development with green spaces and parks and walkability and shade structures and, and it was like, so automatically a venue I could never build or afford. And it certainly wasn't what Stone Mountain was as a tennis facility or anywhere else in a country club. 
I could just borrow from that and it became my tournament site. And so now it's, it's a destination. It's something you want to do and go to. But again, it's that timeliness of like a developer saying he might do it and then investigating heavily how we could do it. And all the way down to several months before the first one, realizing that the tour and its structure had to actually approve the site. And that was a board approval. So I had a lot of fun flying to London just to present to the ATP board at one of their only like six board meetings they have annually. And if they said, no, I don't, I don't even know what, if we were going to have a tournament. Um, and I remember my, I didn't realize like two days before my passport had expired and, you know, I was like, jeez. And, and, but I had to go with pictures and like a PowerPoint to show the site that it wasn't even real where we place tennis courts with, and, and convince them, you know, would you just say yes? Cause you know, this, this will work. And luckily they all said they were ready for that and said, we love, we love being, um, you know, trying, trying new things. And so they said yes to that. Um, but that's just, that's, I think that's the, the, for anybody out there, it's just that the learning curve is, um, it's going to take a lot of energy and enthusiasm, but a lot of follow up and follow through if you really want to make some interesting things happen. Um, and that to me is that's the promoter mentality that I was just fortunate. Um, I said no to being a Ringling and Disney on Ice promoter. I thought it sounded like a carnival thing. I, I was like, I didn't, I didn't get it. I said, I said no at first when I was offered that job. And then somebody called me who had been a promoter for a couple of years. And he said, you really, you really need to do this. It's not what you think. Um, and I was very fortunate that that was just the start of, of having all that, you know, to be right out of college and have all that autonomy, um, in different markets to just dream up ideas and be the only, the one to go make them happen. Um, so I think to your point, doing events, doing festivals, um, just getting engaged in audience based delivery where you can have some ideas and act on them and, and know what it means know what the activation and the detail means. Cause I still find that missing across just so many things that I'll get involved with where I'll, I'll just feel like nobody's paying attention to the actual detail that would be required to pull off, you know, the ideas we're talking about. And then you give them like a less than 50, 50 chance that they'll even happen. I think this plays off of that. You mentioned the launch pad opportunity for a princess or for an intern and I think even for a volunteer, you mentioned 7,000 volunteer opportunities with the 500 festival. What can someone in one of those positions do to stand out and hopefully use that to launch their career in the events business? Be ready to do whatever needs to be done. So if someone's moving bike rack or, you know, um, having to shift a pallet of water from one spot to another, or there's a lot of that. And then doing it with a, with a decent attitude. Um, I've seen a lot of people in this industry that succeed that um, they're, and it sounds trite to say they're not always the smartest one because they, they probably are really smart too, but um, they're the ones with really positive attitude. I mean, you know, events are tiring and, and, you know, the sports world is a grinding number of games and schedules. And I mean, it's, and a positive attitude is just huge because that's who everybody wants to work with, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you add the positive attitude along with being willing to do what needs to be done, that's the start. 
I close each episode with what I call the set pieces. It's the same half dozen questions for each guest. I start with what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? Well, I'll certainly you know be tuning into your podcast on a more regular basis, Pete. I will tell you that. I so appreciate shout that. out to you for for ha- doing something fun and and trying to sort of educate some folks or help people along the way. Um, you know, some of the things I tune into, you know, I get, um, and you know, sometimes you don't even know where you where you come across things, and and then you realize like, oh, oh I look at that every day. And one is there's a the New York Times does a daily like news feed. Um, uh, that is an email format that you can click on. So it's sort of like, and it's like what you missed yesterday kind of thing. Um, and it's just, it's just a good, especially during the pandemic, it's just been a real good look at like, Oh, okay. Let's, I, you know, you kind of want it summarized somewhere. And, and I think your Apple news feed is getting too uh, proactive about trying to just feed you what, what you've been clicking on lately. <laughs> so mm-hmm. having an independent source that you're not influencing what they send you <laughs> is helpful um the other one i just happen to use my yahoo sports app a lot um to again just catch up with with regular information and scores and things like that um so but other than that i'm not always do i i'm a more random listener of you know different audio uh jim gaffigan did a book that you know i enjoyed for the first three months of the pandemic every time i went for a walk i was listening to i think it's called fat dad or something like that it was a um that that was a that was a regular listen for me. Some humor. <laughs> <laughs> On social media, who are your most valuable follows? The posts you don't want to be missing. Um, you know, I hate to say, but maybe it's that promoter in me. I I never want to miss ones that we're generating. <laughs> so <Fair. laughs> I'm definitely like anything festival and 500 related i want to make sure i'm liking i'm following i'm but also seeing what other people are posting about what we're doing and and um and that can take a lot of time you know so i'm not necessarily managing those social media accounts but um i want to be following them and i want to be looking and paying attention to to what people are saying and, and how they're thinking about the things that we do um so i'm probably a little bit um too inward focused on on some of those follows um and, and i you know, I think platform wise, um, you know, for me, LinkedIn is the, is the most, um, from a professional standpoint, just staying tuned into where people are with their job. And, you know, people tend to post more business related things. Um, and it's also a great place to be able to support other people, um, that you know, that you've worked with. Um, and then the only other one, I don't do a lot of posting, but um, I think Facebook has be kind of become family book. I think that's just where a lot of, you know, family connections still stay in touch about, um, you know, life changes and things like that. So nothing too exciting yet. <laughs> You've mentioned one book already. What are a couple other books you might recommend that people check out? Um, I believe on the series you've mentioned good to great before. Um, mm-hmm. I just, you know, just a remarkable book. If you're, if you're kind of a, um, an intellectual or an academic, the fact that that was a graduate program study that was literally trying to determine two companies in the same space. And one goes in one direction and stays there for this really long period of time versus another one that we don't even remember why and and how did that occur? And then trying to actually have a research base to determine that and coming up with some commonalities. 
Um, it's just really a remarkable read that I think anybody could go back to time and time again. Um, there's actually some Dave Ramsey stuff just on, on finance, um, and, and debt and, and, you know, and I, and I think it actually applies corporately as well as personally. Um, and then, um, somebody that I, I got to know, um, through running and, and really got to know his family, um, uh, Meb Kofleski is a Olympic runner. Um, and he's been involved in three minis, all of them. He was helping to promote. He actually wasn't competing. Um, his brother is an agent, prolific agent in track and field. He happens to live here in Indianapolis and he's become a, a good friend and a good contact. And, uh, Meb wrote a book called 26 marathons. Um, and they are just a remarkable story as a family and Meb is a remarkable person and he's so generous and genuine. Um, and so it's him taking 26 specific races and sort of how each one impacted his career, his future and his life. So it's kind of a cool sports read. It's called 26 marathons. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? One that I would assume everybody is using which is just simply online banking (laughs) flat out. Just, you know, I mean, checkbooks are a thing of the past, obviously that that's just a a key time saver lifesaver is just being really engaged in in your app with your bank and knowing how you're managing that. Um, There's actually another one that depending on how your taxes are done, there's an app called tax caddy. And if you do have, um, someone doing your taxes, if you're not, if you're not doing them yourself, um, it allows you to securely download all of the documents necessary. And so there's no more, there's no more scanning or mailing or copying, or you literally can take pictures with your phone of all of your documents and it, and it's all, and it, and when you're done with all of them, it, it alerts your accountant that you're done and you're ready for your taxes. And then he can ask questions through that app for anything else you need to go find and take a picture of um, real time saver, you know, anytime you can get taxes done without, with it being painless. The other one I'm going to, I'll, end on this little one. Um, if you have a public library, um, there's an, there's a, an app called Hoopla and a lot of public libraries are connected to that. And they have all kinds of movies, audiobooks, things that are downloadable and you can download them to your device and they're good for like four days. So it's literally like getting a book from the library or a video from the library or whatever, but all downloadable and all free. Um, and it just has this, this kind of old school, new school fun to it that like you're, you know, you're doing your library thing to get your content. Um, but there's a lot of stuff on there that you're not finding on, you know, Netflix or Hulu or somewhere else. So I, I'm a, I'm a fan of how, I don't, I don't even know where it came from or who did it or how public libraries have their own, method now of allowing you to borrow, you know, books and films and videos, but hoopla, I would say is another one. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Um, as a kid, uh, I would say, um, little league baseball in Port Salerno, Florida. I grew up in Florida and, um, we were sponsored by the, fisherman's fund it was the the wives of commercial fishermen so and and i don't even know what it stood for but it said off was our sponsor but i remember everybody was everybody had taken all the numbers and i was trying to come up with a number um and um 
I realized, I think there was somebody for the Houston Oilers at the time that had double zero. And so I was double zero. And uh, Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies always said he was a double knot spy, like 007. He was a double knot spy. So I was double knot. Um, and I was not a good hitter, but um, I, it was the age where you finally could uh, bunt and you could be walked. And I came, I, I discovered the, the art of drama and sports because I walked more than anybody. I, I could make myself tall, short, you know, over the plate, behind, the, like I, every, every pitch looked like it narrowly escaped hitting me in the head. Um, and so I, I was known for, for pulling off, you know, like everybody knew double knot was going to get a walk because, you know, he, he was, I was going to, you know, fake my way through out of the strike zone. If only um, so on base was percentage was a big stat back then. <laughs> oh, it would have been, I probably, you know, I could have had a chance. I could have had a chance. Um, yeah, but the other is growing up in the, in the, you know, seventies in Florida, the heyday of the dolphins. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember being able to watch Monday night football with the dolphins on a 13 inch black and white TV. And I could stay up to watch that. Um, and just following like just the, the whole, that perfect season, all of that. Um, and I will tell you that many years later, when I was at Universal Studios, I was in a golf tournament and the celebrity uh, that played with our foursome was Jim Kick. Oh, wow. And Jim Kick, it was Kick and Zonka, the two running backs. And he was having, for some reason, the, the beer sponsor was Schlitz. And he was having a Schlitz per hole <laughs> and encouraging me to do the same. And so on about hole six, um, we were waiting for the green to clear and I, and I just, I started nodding my head and, and Jim kick high, you know, an idol, the guy who was, he was the third and one, fourth and one, fourth and goal. He was the guy, you know, even though he seemed to be smaller than Zonka, he was the one that, you know, and uh, I just said, Oh my gosh, this is just depressing. And Jim looked at me, he goes, what? And I said, you know, we're six holes into this. And I said, you know, the perfect season, you're the guy, the tough yards and, and I said, and like, I think I've outdriven you on every hole. <laughs> oh no. And he, he tried to strangle me. He chased me around the golf course. Um, and it was, I think it was just one of those early moments where you realize that, that everybody's people, everybody's human. You, you, you know, it's fun to be in awe. It's fun to have your heroes, but like, um, that, that wound up being a really fun relationship. He actually, um, I think it might have been his daughter that went on to be a tennis bro, uh, Allie, Allie, I think. Yep. Um, he had um, two kids, and I set him up to go to Universal Studios with like a VIP tour and all that. And for the rest of the tournament, our, our big ride at the time was King Kong or Confrontation. And because I was out driving him, he started calling me King Kong. <laughs> And so when you're a kid and that was your idol and you come in and now you've had what might be 18 Schlitz because of 18 <laughs> holes and you're walking in to the clubhouse and your celebrity pro is yelling at you that you're King Kong. Um, I was years later, it was a beat leukemia classic in Atlanta. And I mean, years later, like six, seven, eight years later. And, uh, I'm coming up to the driving range and that was a big tournament. That was, that was a, a time when golf tournaments were, you know, sometimes four day ordeals. And, and anyway, um, 
I was on the driving range and I see somebody being driven up on a golf cart and I look and I go, I think that's Jim kick. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I, I, I gotta go at least, you know, introduce myself and, and remind him or just say hi or something, you know? And, and while he's still in the cart, he looks and he sees me and he, and I don't no idea why. I mean, I really like, that was one moment in the life of a guy who like, especially in Florida was, you know, had many of those moments and he yells, he yells out from the cart, Kong, it's King Kong. And everybody on the driving range is looking at little me, like, why is that? What is up with that? You know? And, um, and so just, it was just one of those neat moments where you realize that, you know, everybody, um, even those you're in awe of, or even those that you think are your, your sports heroes or whatever, we're all people. Um, and we, and we all have, uh, we're all trying to have fun in life and, um, and, and so that was, that was bringing, you know, talk about childhood to like adulthood. It was like, oh my gosh, how is this, how is this happening that I would ever wind up in any remote sort of recognition, much, you know, or a relationship with like one of the heroes of the perfect season. So that's probably that's one of my better ones. That's great. My final question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Um, it's possible that I might be the first to say, because I think you've said everybody says yes. Uh, we've had a few who have said no. Okay. Okay. So I keep some, they're probably in boxes somewhere. I had a weird notion early on that I wanted everything I was doing to be a memory of that moment and not feel like I needed to take a picture. I have no pictures of me and Jim kick, <laughs> you know, I just didn't, I wanted to be in the moment and not be thinking I wanted to snap a picture of the moment. I wanted to be in the sure. moment. Now, as I'm older and I got kids or in the sports, you know, it might, I, you know, maybe I should have a picture of Jim kick that I could show them or, and tell them who he is. But, um, but no, I, I guess I just had a mentality that whatever interesting and neat thing I was doing or whatever access I had that, that there was still more to come. And so, I, I kind of, you know, but I do, I, they are fun when I run across stuff that I have, I do actually have the, the credential board from the Atlanta tournament is actually in my office because um, somebody secretly got the players to sign it when I, at my last tournament. Um, and, uh, and then all the staff signed it. So all the signatures are illegible and I don't know who was staff and who's <laughs> a player, but I have the, I have the credential board of, of, uh, from that, but yeah, no, so I don't, I don't always keep them all. Um, but it, I think it is a fun thing to do. So my favorite song, Paul Simon has a song that I think is for our industry. If you've ever heard wristband. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you got to have a wristband and it's like yep. him backstage, not being let back into the arena. And he's like, my band's up there and they're like, sorry, man, you got to have a wristband for some yep. reason that that's like the, that's the ultimate sports event song is that you got to have a wristband, man. Like you got to have a credential. Bob, I appreciate all the insights from, as you called it, your eclectic background uh, and also your work with the 500 festival. And I feel like we've barely scratched the surface with some of the stories you could share from over the years. So thank you for all your time and for sharing what you have with us today. Hey, it's been a pleasure. I hope everybody goes to make stories um, and, and fills their life with cool memories and things they want to tell to people later. So I appreciate the time and the opportunity. I really appreciate Bob taking the time to share all of that with us today. And I thank you for listening. Credentials Only can be found on your favorite social media platform. 
While you're online, please check out our website, credentialsonly.com and sign up for our mailing list so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode. And don't forget, if you haven't done so already, a rating or review wherever you are listening will help us get exposed to some new audiences. Big thanks to Mike Miche for his heavy lifting on editing credentials only, which is a Holter Media production.